Love a good fright? Stream your fears with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and acclaimed exclusives like Creepshow and Slasher, Flesh and Blood, experience what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series covers the horror spectrum, meaning there's something for every type of horror, thriller, and supernatural fan. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder, so good, it's scary. There's a reason podcasts are popping up everywhere. Podcasts can make you money. And Spreaker is the easiest way to start a podcast. You could literally record your first episode today. Spreaker has all the tools you need to record, edit, publish, and yeah, monetize your podcast all in one place. And it's free. So tell your story and make money while doing it. Start your podcast for free now at Spreaker.com slash make money. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash make money from the iHeart Podcast Network. The Real-Time Crime Podcast is for true fans of true crime. Join Leah Lamar and Teddy Mellencamp for an iHeartRadio original podcast dedicated to armchair detectives. Embark on a quest to unravel unsolved mysteries and delve into current criminal trials in real time. Why do I obsess over true crime? It's because I need to know every detail because they say that the devil's in the details. Listen to Real-Time Crime on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. a lot of emails about cold cases all the time and um, I always google it and kind of look and see if it would be something that you know maybe we could help with and um, and this one first I was kind of struck by the fact it's another girl it's another situation where there are a lot of suspects potential suspects um, usually when I look you know doing a lot of true crime stuff and usually when I look at a story I can tell in the first five minutes what probably happened but this one is really strange. As I drive the long and winding roads into the Ozarks, I think about a conversation I had in a high school physics class. The teacher was talking about time travel. Where would we go, he asked, if we could be instantly transported to any point in history? Some people said they would pop back to see a dinosaur or visit Jesus. But the response that stopped everyone cold was from the quiet kid in the back. I would go back to the day my mom was murdered, he said, so I could be there and stop it. And if I couldn't stop it, at least I could see who did it. Investigating a cold case murder is the closest thing I will ever get to time travel. A lot has happened since last season. After spending months in the Ozarks, I went back to New York City for my job. And I tried to get on with my life. But wherever I am, interviewing an FBI profiler, riding the subway, drinking beers with a date, a big part of my brain is stuck replaying September 20th, 2004, the day Rebecca Gould was murdered. Six months after our last season wrapped, I'm back in Arkansas. Like I said back then, when we started Rebecca's case, 
We thought we knew who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. But now, I'm not so sure. We have given all kinds of information to the police. Piles of documents and letters. Uncut audio clips. As our intention has always been to help the investigation. And yet, in many ways, the investigation feels just as still as it was before. For now, it's a waiting game. But patience has never been my strong suit. Since the end of season one, I've received hundreds of messages about other unsolved cases in Arkansas. People reach out at all hours of the night on social media. I had no idea there were so many unsolved murders and so many people who needed help. Then one night, I get a Facebook message that says I should look into the mysterious death of Olivia Janie Ward. It started on September 9th, 1989, 16-year-old Janie headed out to a cabin in the woods outside the tiny town of Marshall, Arkansas. It was just another weekend, another high school party. But a few hours later, Janie was dead. The story goes that she died from falling off a porch, a porch that was no more than 10 inches tall. As Janie lay there, dead or dying, Her friends made the decision to load her into the back of a pickup truck and drive her to the middle of town. They ended up at the bank parking lot. One of the paramedics who examined Janie noticed that she was wet and covered in debris. The paramedic immediately concluded that she believed this was a suspicious death. In the 30 years since she died, her body has been exhumed twice. There have been three different autopsies conducted by three separate people and several investigations, both by police and by private detectives. But no one has been able to explain the inconsistencies, and no one can answer the question, what or who killed Janie Ward? Was it an accident, or could it have been murder? On a recent trip back to Arkansas to visit my dad, I saw a huge black pickup truck drive by. On the back, I saw a faded bumper sticker, It read justice for Janie. It hit a nerve with me because I've been waiting for justice for Rebecca. I'm going to see if I can figure out what happened to Janie. So once again, we have to go back in time. But this time, we're going back to September 9th, 1989, the night Janie died. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. Right off the main highway in Marshall. Um, Marshall is a small town with a population of about 1,300, half the size of Mountain View, where we spent last season. We're next to Pappy's Flea Market, which has knives and tools and lots of knickknacks. The main drag, two-lane Highway 65, is lined with flea markets, a few churches, and Sonic. At one intersection is the business district. 
There's the Daisy Queen, an old-school burger joint that's been serving up fried Twinkie Sundays to locals since 1966. Just past Harp's grocery store, a road veers off toward the woods. This is the route that Janie took toward the party on Zack Road on the last night of her life. I'm riding with Gabby, one of our producers. Head north on Spring Street, then turn left onto East Main Street. But we don't have time to see the sights. For 39 miles, yeah, continue straight. straight. That's easy, right? Yeah. Harrison. We're headed north to meet with our first contact, Mike Masterson. I guess, could you talk about him and like how Mike? you met him? And yeah. Him? Mike is a real old school investigative journalist. And how I met him was... Um, after getting tipped off about this case, the Janie Ward case, I started looking into journalists who might have written about it locally. And Mike has written over 200 articles for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, um, opinion pieces uh, on the Janie Ward case. And he's been a really strong advocate for getting justice for her. Like I said last season, in this neck of the woods, you're either from here or you're from off. And since I'm in the latter category, it helps to find someone local who understands the case. We meet him and his wife at his home office in Harrison. That's my Chihuahua, Winston. Since I don't know when I'll be going home, I brought him with me. Mike is friendly and smart, and he has a great sense of humor. Framed copies of his many exposés from the Chicago Sun-Times and other newspapers cover the walls of his home office. Yeah, this on these walls, this accumulation looks kind of like a museum, doesn't it? of my 46-year, seven-year career in journalism. There's a cowboy hat on the back of his chair and a display bottle of Crown Royal on his shelf. He's eager to talk about Janie. The Janie Ward case is, I think, by far, of the complex cases that I've been involved in, matters that I consider to be injustice. That remains today. Mike didn't start writing about Janie until 2004, 15 years after she died. He got interested in the case after her family was trying to get her body exhumed for another autopsy. Mike had investigated numerous murder cases in Arkansas, so a colleague of his thought he could help with Janie's. A reporter from this newspaper in Harrison called me one day and he said, Mike, there's a case you need to look at. It involves the death of a young girl um, in high school. So I got in touch with Ron. Ron is Janie's dad. And Ron... (laughs) Being the dedicated father he was to his daughter, his late daughter, um, had been collecting every scrap of information he could get. The more I looked at it, the more I realized this thing stinks to high heaven. You know, she didn't fall off a nine-inch tall porch, which I described in one column as the length of my shoe, and tear her spinal column in half. Uh, None of it made any sense. To this day, Mike is not convinced that Janie simply fell off a porch and died. And I want to trust him because he's seen the underbelly of this state. And for him, a cover-up is never out of the question. We'll be right back. Love a good fright? Start streaming and screaming with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and critically acclaimed exclusives, discover what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series cover the entire horror spectrum, meaning there's something for every type of fan. 
Come experience highly anticipated new releases like Superhost, Seance starring Suki Waterhouse, and the Boulay Brothers' Dracula. Plus, don't miss out on Creepshow, Slasher, Flesh and Blood, and other must-see Shudder exclusives you won't find anywhere else. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder, so good it's scary. This episode is sponsored by Maidenhome, high-quality, handcrafted furniture for the modern home. Maidenhome brings you thoughtfully designed custom furniture, handcrafted in North Carolina. This region is home to some of the world's most talented artisans who are experts in woodworking, upholstery, and finishing. By partnering directly with these family-owned workrooms, Maidenhome gives you access to the world's finest craftsmanship without the retail markup. From sofas and sectionals to tables and beds, you'll find beautiful heirloom-quality pieces that will last for years. And with over 60 fabrics and leathers and a variety of wood finishes to choose from, you can create a piece custom to your design style. Enjoy complimentary white glove delivery on all orders, a lifetime warranty, and easy returns within 30 days. To browse the latest collection and order free swatches, visit MadeInHome.com. That's M-A-I-D-E-N-H-O-M-E.com to start building your custom piece today. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Is that Shakespeare? Nope, it's Geico. Uh, Yeah, 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 that's Shakespeare from one of his unpublished works. Oh, it be not for awakening. Nay, give it thou the berries. For 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. No, it's from Geico, because they help save people money. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Geico got it from Shakespeare. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. In his 200 columns about Janie, Mike kept asking his readers, what if Janie Ward was your daughter? After I'd been writing about this for probably a year, they had a rally at the Capitol, Justice for Janie rally. So I went down there, and probably 200 people from around Arkansas showed up at that big rally. It was obvious to me that this case had really touched the nerve. I think a lot of people in this state and other states, but in this state, have had injustices happen to them. And so in many ways, I think they could relate to what the wards were going through, trying to get answers, can't get answers. Uh, When I get answers, nobody does anything. And I told Ron when we first started this, I said, you know, Ron, I can can write a million words about what happened to Janie, but you need to understand that at some point the system has to work. If the system doesn't work, it doesn't matter how many words I write or how many people in Arkansas know how bad this was and can see a lot of the truth of this case, it won't matter because nobody will take action that has the authority to take action. While he was writing about Janie, Mike Masterson became close with the Ward family, and he's agreed to set up a meeting with Janie's mom, Mona. Janie's dad, Ron, passed away last year. Did you, you never met Ron, but... What was he like as a person? Straightforward, six foot five, 330 pounds, big, big man, had hands twice the size of mine. Very driven. Ron was an extremely driven person to find out what happened to his daughter. The next day, we head to the Townhouse Cafe in Harrison. Mike is already there. 
He directs us to a table at the back of the restaurant, near the kitchen, that's gearing up for a very busy lunch hour. Mona arrives along with her daughter and Janie's younger sister, Crystal. They hug Mike. Their familiarity is almost like that of soldiers. They've clearly been through a lot together. Mona is emotional, but she's also tough. It's obvious that no matter how hard this is for her, she wants to get her daughter's story out. I can recall it, but I blocked out a lot on purpose to keep from dwelling on it because it's painful. Mona immediately dives into what happened on September 9th, 1989. All right, uh, the night it happened, a distant cousin, he came and said that Janie had, had had an accident and she was in the hospital in Harrison. And so we just jumped in the car with him. And when we got to the, the 65, instead of taking a left to go to Harrison to the hospital, he took a right. And Ronnie said, well, where are you going? What are you doing? He said, we got to go by the sheriff's office. And we knew then something was up and it wasn't right. And when we got there, there was probably over 100 people, parents and children. And we just had to elbow our way in. And, and when we got in, it was lined with people, you know, small sheriff department. And then I was asking people, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? And when we got in the sheriff's office, you know, he said, Jenny was dead. No explanation. After the sheriff told them the news, Mona said he abruptly walked out of the room and didn't answer any of their questions. And I just lost it. And Ronnie did too. And then they said, you have to go. We have to take you to the morgue. And I couldn't do it. I did not want that to be my last memory of Janie. I couldn't do it. Still in shock from the news, Ron went with the police to identify Janie's body. I was going to say that I remember Ronnie, we had a long talk about this too, um, several times. But he mentioned when he saw Janie in the mortuary that she was wet, had the sand, and that he... When he touched her, her neck just, he could tell her neck was broken. Ron described to Mona what he saw. Janie was lying on a table, and he immediately noticed her neck. It looked broken. He saw bruising on her face and down her neck. He ran his hands through her hair and felt what he believes to be sand. And uh, he saw the condition she was in, and he told me, and later... I wished I had it so I could, you know, confirm everything he saw. But although I knew, he saw what he saw. And they, they said to him, they said, do you want to use this funeral home, our funeral home, or the other funeral home? And he said, I want an autopsy. Ron was suspicious that the coroner didn't immediately suggest an autopsy. But once he insisted, the police took Janie's body to the state crime lab in Little Rock. And when she got there... She was dressed in altogether different clothes than what he saw her in and what she let the house in. So naturally, you know, he knew then. And and I saw the pictures of what she was in. She was in a T-shirt that she she wouldn't have ever worn. It was a uh, T-shirt with a gaping mouth skeleton on it. And she had never even worn anything like that. She wasn't even into that sort of thing or or heavy metal music. It just wasn't her at all. When Ron saw Janie's body, he said she had been wearing a blue and white pinstripe shirt. 
But by the time Janie was delivered to the state crime lab for the autopsy, a photograph taken of her showed her wearing a black T-shirt with the band Def Leppard on the front. When he saw her, when Ron saw her at the morgue, was she wearing the pinstripe shirt or the T-shirt? Ronnie said she had on a pinstripe shirt. He buttoned her top shirt, uh, buttoned, because it was bloused, and he buttoned it. That's how we know. It must have been changed at the morgue. And also, she didn't didn't do drugs. Uh, She didn't smoke pot. And there was two rolled marijuana joints in her pocket. None in her system. So they depicted her. You know, it's like depicting her as a wild child or something. And I'm not being naive. I knew my daughter very well, and I knew her friends. And she was totally out of her element, her league of friends. None of her friends were there that she ran with. Uh, I mean, she went to school with the kid. These kids were there that were there, but they were the, the wild ones, you know. And uh, that wasn't her, they weren't, weren't her type. Mona has already raised a lot of questions for me. First, what happened to Janie's shirt? Ron insisted that she was wearing a different shirt at the crime lab than what he saw her in at the Morgan Marshall. He also saw injuries on her face and neck. So why didn't the coroner suggest an autopsy immediately? As an investigator, I know that every suspicious death should be treated as a homicide until it can be proven otherwise. And why was Janie at the party in the first place? According to her family, it seemed out of character. When you said that she wasn't part of the crowd at the party that night, um, can you just tell us a little bit about what she was like, what her life was like at that time? She was, she had her crowd. You know, everybody does. They have their little groups. Mm -hmm. And hers was uh, more like the Goody Tuesday girls, you know, more more so, you know. Not, and the ones she, those girls, these people at this part were the, the, Snobs, the preppies, you know. Have you ever seen Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion? This is Crystal, Janie's sister. Well, my sister was like the B group, and the other girls were the A group, and that's kind of like how they treated her. And she had a job, right? Yes. She was. Yeah, she worked, and uh, she was smart. Uh, made good grades. Everybody that knew her. Unless they were in the A group, loved her. She really was. Jenny was a wonderful person, and um, I mean, she just did. She just uh, was for the underdog. She always uh, worked, and uh, she would spend her money on other people. She would. She really would. Uh, if there was somebody poorer than we were, she'd go out of her way to make sure that they had something. Yeah, Crystal told Janie this story about a little girl in her grade who said all she wanted for. Christmas. Or something. She just wanted a Barbie doll. Oh, she didn't have, never had a Barbie doll. And Crystal told Janie, and Janie said, "Well, Crystal, you got a new Barbie doll, and you got Barbie dolls, plenty of Barbie dolls." And uh, she said, "You could give her your new Barbie doll." And Crystal was like, "Hmm." Shouldn't open my mouth. And uh, and Janie relented, you know, said, "Okay." So Janie bought balloons, you know, for the little girl. Because it was Valentine's Day. So she bought her balloons, and, and Crystal contributed the new Barbie doll and had it put in the bag. And then Crystal had it sent by the flower shop to the little girl in her classroom. Sophisticated for a kid to do that, actually. That's the way she was. I mean, yeah. She just always did things like that. Yeah. 
After Janie's death, Ron started obsessively collecting articles about the case, interviewing witnesses, and demanding every single piece of paperwork from police and from the Arkansas State Crime Lab. He was the one that had pursued it all this time. Well, he made me promise I'd carry it on. But, you know, I can't do that because I can't do it, do it like he did, because I can't. I can't handle that. But I guess by doing it like this, I am keeping my promise to him that I would. What did he have? Was it a heart or cancer or what? It was uh, COPD. COPD, yeah. Yeah, he was a chain smoker ever since Janie died. And and he, he would have been 69 in September, too. And, I mean, we all... We all three smoked cigarettes, but that really, he did eat them. I mean, like, one after the other. Because that's all he pretty much did, he laid in bed and smoked. The last set, uh, got on the computer, read stuff. And, the last know, several months. That's all he did. Yeah, he was a chain smoker. Last several months. Ron wrote a letter to Janie, promising her that he would get justice. He put it in her coffin before she was buried. I've never asked you that. I didn't get a chance to ask Ron. What did Ron say in that note? What did he tell her? You know, the promise that he would he would avenge her or, you know, the original letter. I think it was the original letter where he made the promise that he would uh, have, there would be justice for her or that he would pursue justice as long as he lived. After two hours of talking, everyone is exhausted. Mona mentions that she's brought everything Ron collected over the years, and she's agreed to let us look through it. We pay the bill and head outside. The main box is a blue plastic bin. It's huge. And there's a second one, a little smaller, that's brown. They're both a lot heavier than they look. We don't know if we can even fit them into our car. We're going to go to Mountain View and go well, through It's going everything. to take you more than a day to go through that. Oh, yeah. No, we'll... we'll so, you know, just stay in touch and let me All right. We'll get it to you in the next few days. Whatever you can get done, then, then I'll have it, okay? Yeah. Have it. We're going to guard it with our lives. Okay. Like, it's okay. going to be... He'll be yeah. well looked after. All right. Thank you. I mean, I feel good about it. I'm just saying... No, I understand. It's a yeah. huge... I. It's a just, hey, uh, just a really huge thing because it means yeah. so much to our family. And uh, just a promise I made to my dad... That's to, you know, carry, you're carrying the torch. That's right. That's right. The torch hadn't died. Right. No. But well, we take you know, it extremely seriously. Ron Ron's responsible for her being here too. He is. Yep. Otherwise, I mean, why this case? Years later. How long has it been since we were? I was doing this. It's been 15 years. Long time. 14. Long time. <laughs> we been. say goodbye to the family giving them our word that we won't let anything happen to the boxes. Bye. Gabby and I get in the car and watch Mona and Crystal drive off. Okay. Then, all of a sudden, the emotion of the case hits us. <laughs> yeah, I just Talk don't wanna, I'm not going to cry in front of them because they, yeah. you know, they, I, I, I don't do that because, like, they shouldn't be comforting me, you know? Yeah, she just like, seemed, I, like, I was kind of trying to read her. She just seemed like, I'm here, you know, yeah. so I was like, okay, let's, let's just roll then. Yeah. So she doesn't have to repeat herself. Yeah. I don't think they would have handed that box to anybody else, I'll tell you that right now. Like, unless Mike got involved, you know, unless we were all... And I just feel like, yeah, for them, they have to balance... They have children and families and lives, so you can't spend the rest of your life living it for your, you know... 
can't spend the right, at some point you do have to detach emotionally and go on with your life, but, so it's really good when someone comes in and does that stuff for you. Because it's also, you, I can't imagine being like, the, the bravery the dad had to have to do that investigation himself, to hear all that stuff over and over and, you know, try to be objective. After a long day, we make our way back to my dad's house in Mountain View. We take the elevator and put the boxes in my dad's game room on the top floor of his house. Actually, I call it my war room because it's where I started investigating Rebecca's case all those years ago. Should we open first? Maybe this big one. Yeah, I'm just curious. How heavy was it? Probably like 100 pounds. Yeah. Easy. Because I carried the, when I did, um, for Rebecca's case, I, I was seeing a hard be to carry a 100 pound dummy and I don't think it was that heavy. Maybe it's just that seems bulkier, but I open the blue box. Wow. And immediately I'm hit by the overwhelming smell of stale cigarettes. I close my eyes and I can almost see Ron chain smoking late at night, obsessing, making notes, circling, highlighting, trying anything to get answers. The first thing I see is a manila folder labeled oh, to do. To do file. He left this. Wow. This is information on, it's like press clippings, some emails with Mike. What's this? This looks like an autopsy. There are more folders and binders full of documents like transcribed interviews with witnesses, police notes, letters from Arkansas citizens interested in the case, and old newspaper clippings about Janie. The box is also packed with photos of Janie, and at the bottom, there's an aluminum tin with an imprint that says Dad on the top. Inside is a pocket knife. It's likely one of Janie's last gifts to her dad. So there's cassette tapes, Gary Don Snow, 72407 Part 2. Wow, these are all interviews, it looks like. What are they on, HG? How are we going to watch that? These boxes are like a time capsule. There are multiple types of media, DVDs, CDs, VHSs, and cassettes. We also find dozens of micro-cassettes. Fortunately, Ron's left behind his recorder. It's beaten up and dented, but when I press play on another cassette, it works. And the war room is filled with Ron's deep, booming voice. Okay, now then, when I went and saw my daughter up there in the... Uh, uh, Morgan up here. She had on a uh, white pinstripe shirt. She lying there with her head turned like this out on the fluorescent light on, a, on this table. And there was a light blue jacket laying beside her. And uh, I pulled the shirt down and buttoned the bottom button up. And it felt damp to my touch. And I thought, what, what's this? Well, uh -huh. I said, what's this? What's this? So, you know, I took, felt of her hands, arms, and she began to get kind of stiff. And I had to touch her head, you know, tears, my eyes, and all. And when I, I had to feel her neck, and her head kind of rolled just a little bit like that. And I saw this, this figuration. Her ear was purple. Up to here was purple. It was purple all the way down through here, down to right here. Okay? Massive purple. Okay? I run my fingers through her hair, like this, and this stuff kept coming out. It was like sand, 
and flakes. This was a fine sand also. You know, was it, it fine to what fine. I felt before? Uh-huh. It was, her hair was stiff. And, it, it, you know, it started getting, uh, coming off on this white table. And one of her ears was half, like, full of this substance. And it was on her face. And uh, I thought, wow, you know. And uh, then I, uh, I was told she fell off his porch. Well, and I wondered, how in the hell did she get this huge bruise here, you know? And her ears just like, you know, this purple, livid. I mean, it was, it was coming out, okay. What they done is they washed her and they cleaned her up. Or when I saw her, I would might buy the story that she fell off this little porch. It's only about the eight tall. My daughter was beaten to death. We find the Arkansas State Police's 6,000-page case file on a disc. On it are Janie's autopsy photos. Autopsy photos after a person has been dug up are extremely graphic and disturbing. I can't imagine a grieving father having to look through these. The original autopsy concluded that she died of an upper spinal cord and neck injury. I found myself asking the same question Ron did. How could a healthy 16-year-old girl fall off a short 9 and 3 quarter inch tall step and die? What really happened at that party? We'll be right back. Good afternoon. Would you like to try a free sample of our double fudge brownie? Oh, sure. Mmm, that's very good. I'll just take one more, just to be sure. Yep, still very good. Some things never change, like never being able to take just one free sample. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Mmm, is that macadamia nut I taste? Let me take one more. Sir, mmm. I thought so. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a soap opera star. Gracious me, my car has storm damage and I've had to file a claim. Could it possibly get worse? Will my claims team leave me for someone else? Someone less intense? Um, no. Actually, when you file a claim with GEICO, you get your own dedicated claims team who promises to stay with you throughout the process. Oh, I've never known such loyalty. I can't wait for the second season. Geico, great service without all the drama. Geico knows there are many reasons why you ride. From the exciting adventure of the daily commute to the peace of mind that Geico always has your back with 24-7 access to claim service and legendary customer service. But Pamela Mund had one reason in particular. My skin is extremely averse to most fabrics, except for the soft, buttery feeling of leather. Thankfully, I found my clan of leather lovers in the biking community. It's been life-changing. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. As I said at the end of season one, we're all in this together. Unlike Rebecca's, Janie's case, at least on paper, is closed. That means we have full access to Janie's case file, all 6,000 pages of it. We can take a look at the entire investigation from beginning to end to tell Janie's story. We can see all of the facts, at least 
we should be able to see them. That night, after we met with Mona and Crystal, I wake up at 2 a.m. Being back in Arkansas is weird, but also familiar. In many ways, it's like nothing has changed since I was a kid. Around here, things happen slowly, and big things are measured in geologic time. That's what geology is, the study of pressure and time. We don't notice the tiny changes every day as rain slides over stone, but over time, this is how mountains are formed and rivers change course. This theory applies to cold cases, too. New DNA is found. Witnesses come forward. Journalists knock on a lot of wrong doors before actually getting to the right people who can break the case. Years, sometimes decades later, killers are finally arrested. With enough pressure and time, anything can happen. And there is no statute of limitations on murder. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. Helen Gone is a joint production between School of Humans and iHeartRadio. It is written and recorded by me, Katherine Townsend. Taylor Church and Gabby Watts are our producers and story editors. Executive producers are Brandon Barr, Brian Lavin, and L.C. Crowley for School of Humans and Connell Byrne and Chuck Bryant for iHeart. Our field producer is Miranda Hawkins. Theme and original score are by Ben Salee. Available wherever you get your music. Please visit us at HelenGonePodcast.com or follow us on social media. Support for this podcast is from Williams. We make clean energy happen. Williams is the first North American midstream company to establish a climate commitment and an immediate approach to a sustainable future. We've released our 2020 sustainability report to track progress on our ESG goals, which includes a near-term emissions reduction target of 56% by 2030. We're leveraging our natural gas-focused strategy to fight climate change today and build a clean energy economy tomorrow. Our infrastructure and commitment are transforming the future of energy. Learn more at williams.com. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. At age 30, Carissa finished her high school diploma. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, you can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. The Real-Time Crime Podcast is for true fans of true crime. Join Leah Lamar and Teddy Mellencamp for an iHeartRadio original podcast dedicated to armchair detectives. Embark on a quest to unravel unsolved mysteries and delve into current criminal trials in real time. Why do I obsess over true crime? It's because I need to know every detail because they say that the devil's in the details. Listen to Real-Time Crime on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.